0: It's good to see you, church. I hope that you are well this morning. Hope you are uh, enjoying this Lord's Day so far. Uh, We are in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, and as Nathan was uh, reading the scripture for this morning, you were probably wondering what in the world a lost axe head has to do with what's going on with the rest of the story in Kings. So uh, that's what I hope to do this morning, is to sort of explain this story in such a way that brings a lot of truth out of it. One of the things, though, that I think <laughs> that I've come to learn is that, is that sometimes we can get ahead of God, so to speak, especially when it comes to reading and studying the Bible. Uh, sometimes I don't think we let God surprise us by the ways in which he likes to tell his stories and, and the ways in which he likes to reveal himself through some very surprising ways, which is just to say, sometimes, because we know the end, we know that you know, all of the Bibles about Jesus and Jesus wins, that we come to stories, especially ones like this this morning, and we just kind of don't let it surprise us. I would say this morning that this is a very surprising story, especially its partner story in verse 8 down through verse 23, which we'll be covering as well. But I would say that what God loves to do is he loves to sort of subvert our expectations. Too. He loves to come on, uh, come on the scene in a story and gives us something uh, that does something to us that we would rarely expect or anticipate. And I think that's true for the big story of the Bible. And it's true especially this morning in these smaller stories. In fact, if you read verses 1 through 7 about this servant who loses his axe... And then you read verses 8 through 23, you would very much likely be left scratching your head as to why this historian has ever decided to put these stories back to back. They don't really make much sense, at least on the surface, why they would be here together. In the same chapter, in the same sort of narrative, why would he put these stories together? They don't have a lot of similarities. But I think that's exactly why he puts them together, actually. (laughs) I think the historian, led by the Holy Spirit, we could say, puts both of these narratives, verses 1-7 through 7, and then verses 8-23, through 23, back to back. Precisely because I, want, I think he wants us to see that this glorious God that we have, this Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, the, as we have sung this morning, the King of Kings. He shines brightly in his sovereignty in both of these contrasting stories. Let me explain. So. Back in verse number 1, the historian brings us back to the company of of the the sons of the prophets. These are, we could say, students of the prophet Elisha. And one of these students, he speaks up and he brings this this news, this this piece of information to the prophet Elisha. Just the very fact that their dormitory, we could say, is getting too cramped. It's too small. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha. Behold now the place where we dwell is with thee is too straight for us too narrow too cramped let us go we pray thee unto Jordan and take thence every man a beam and let us make a place there and, and where we may dwell and he answered go ye we're not given information as to what precipitated this request, what what led up to it, we could say. But we might infer, I would say, that what's happening here is Elisha and his ministry is such that new students are coming to learn the ways of Yahweh under him. You, You might know that during this time in Israel's history, Yahweh is not very much the popular sort of God on the scene. It's a land that's riddled with idol worship, especially Baal and others. So here he's operating and functioning very much, we could say, a school for these sons of the prophets. Teaching them the ways of Yahweh. that had fallen out of favor. Now they have a need because they're running out of room. <laughs> so they have this idea. Let's go and we'll build a new school, a new dormitory, we could say, on the banks of the Jordan. It's a very significant place to pick. The Jordan River of course with, it, with how it's so historically significant for the people of Israel but Elisha agrees and eventually in verse 3 he's persuaded to even go with them down to this construction site notice verse 3 and one said be content I pray thee And go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down wood. So they're cutting down all these logs. They're using them to make this new school, this new house for all of them to learn, to study, and to continue learning the ways of Yahweh. In verse 5. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Just an accident. A weird circumstance occurs. This one random student who is now turning into a lumberjack. He's chopping down a tree and all of a sudden his axe head falls off and goes into the Jordan. And as we see here, it really distresses the student. This cry of, alas, master, is a cry for help. He is distraught over this. <laughs> Elisha doesn't delay in coming to his help. He doesn't sort of dilly-dally. He comes right to his side. And the man of God said, verse 6, where fell it? And he showed him the place. And he cut down a stick and cast it in thither. And the iron did swim. Therefore said he, take it up to thee. And he put out his hand and took it. (laughs) Kind of random, kind of a minor story. Very much a miracle, we could say, thrown through. This idea that Elisha just cuts down this random stick, puts it in the water and the iron and magically floats to the surface f- so that the student can grab it again. And now this lost and now found ax is something that speaks to the student, relieving him of all his fear. Precisely because, this, as he said, this ax head was borrowed Again, put yourself in the student's shoes. He has borrowed this axe from someone else. We don't know who it was. It was on loan to him. And so in that moment when he loses it, it is a very significant moment. (laughs) Because he knows that he's required by law to pay back the whole thing in full of whatever was borrowed. It's listed in Exodus, I think, chapter 22, but regardless, he knows that uh, this is something that he has to return in full. And we might also know this, that axe heads, especially those made of iron, were not just common household items that you would see rusting in a garage. This was a very valuable, expensive item in this day and age. With some, some students of the word have suggested that this iron axe head was comparable in worth to a modern car. So again, put yourself in the student's shoes. You've borrowed a car from a friend, you could say, and you wreck it. But you don't just wreck it, you total it. A totaled, borrowed car, that's a very distressing situation, A lot more significant than just losing an axe head. You're totaling a car that you borrowed. And yes, that's exactly what this student is here enduring. That's how much of a headache he has. We can only imagine his joy, his elation as he finds this axe head again. He is relieved. You can see it in his, or at least perhaps I'm inferring it. Inferring it in his student's voice as he gladly takes up that lost now found accent and yet maybe you're wondering what in the world is the point of this story (laughs) well I'm glad you asked I don't think it's an allegory for salvation as some have said some uh, scholars have used this story and made each thing mean something else and you can do that very easily and I think it's fine I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case Actually, I would say the point of this story isn't really revealed until we see the next story. So look at verse number 8. Because the story in here switches gears and one of the most stark transitions ever. Because we go from the story about a lost ax head to now suddenly we're in the middle of war between Syria and Israel. Not a very smooth transition, but he makes it. Verse number 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel. And he took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him, and warned of him, and saved himself there, not once, nor So we're thrust into the middle of this ongoing conflict between Syria and Israel. And the king of Syria, we might see here, is getting very irritated. He's getting very frustrated. Because it seems as though every single time he wants to make a very strategic military maneuver, Israel seemingly knows exactly where he's going. They can perfectly predict where he's going to send troops, where he's going to amass uh, reinforcements. And they can perfectly predict that and counter it as if they are in his war room with him. The king of Syria is frustrated. Frustrated. It's almost as if Elisha knows all of these things. It's almost as if someone knows all these things. Of course, as we've already read, we do know that. Elisha has been made aware, perhaps by the Holy Spirit of God, knowing uh, knowing exactly what the king of Syria does. Elisha is able to tell the king of Israel. And he saves himself, as it says there, verse 10, not once or twice. This is happening over and over. This isn't just a one-off event. This is happening constantly. So much so, in verse 11, the king of Syria calls all of his closest servants, come to my, come to my room, come to my, my, my chambers, we need to hash this out. Because I think one of you is a spy. Verse number 11, therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore, troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? <laughs> one of you guys is a double agent, I know it. <laughs> He's convinced of it here. I know one of you is actually working for Israel, and you're ruining all my plans. In verse 12, one of his servants said, none, my lord, no. There's no spy among us. We're not leaking information to Israel. We're not sort of working for the enemy, even as we stand here before you. Notice he says, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. I find it interesting that these Syrian servants are able to know this. We're not told how they know this. We're not even told exactly how Elisha knows what he knows. And we're not even told how these Syrian servants know that Elisha knows that he knows what he knows. (laughs) But regardless, this is where we are. Elisha knows what Syria is planning. And the servants of the king of Syria know that Elisha knows what the king of Syria is planning. It's a very strange sequence of events, but understandably, it makes the king of Syria even more furious than he already was before. Look at verse 13. And he said, go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him saying, behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore, send he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. So he is so mad, so frustrated, all his plans are getting thwarted. that he says, I got an idea. I'm going to mass another army. We're going to surround where Elisha lives. We're going to take all of my mighty hosts, my chariots, my foot soldiers, all of them. We're going to surround Elisha's home and we're going to seize him. We're going to capture him, take him off of the battlefield, so to speak which I also just find interesting because if Elisha saw those other movements wouldn't it stand to reason that he could see this one too but anyways this army is coming this army is coming to Elisha's place where he lives Dothan but one of his servants verse 15 happens to wake up early in the morning we're not told if he's roused we're not told if this is the time he always woke up but he's it's early and I imagine him sort of sleepily walking outside, still rubbing his eyes, trying to wake up. And look at verse fifteen, because then he's suddenly woken up by what he sees. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. How about that for a wake-up call? He, I just get this picture of this guy just walking outside, just greeting another day. Nothing overly elaborate about. Nothing really different. And suddenly he sees, and his eyes widen about three times bigger than what they were before, because he sees a full army in front of the city waiting, as he might imagine, to pounce on this Elisha. You might imagine he's very much awake now. He's very much fully awake. And he runs back inside, and his servant said unto him, the prophet, Alas, my master, how shall we do? What do we do now? Elisha, what do we do with this great, fearsome, mighty host that's just outside the door? He's distressed. He's worried. He's fearful of what awaits them outside the city gates. And yet, look at what Elisha replies with. So calm, so collected, so certain. And he, that is Elisha, answered, fear Not, For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Hmm. I wish I could have seen that. Suddenly, as Elisha and his servant, just again, picture the scene. They're outside. It's, you know, crack of dawn. It's still dimly lit morning. And Elisha prays and then suddenly it feels as if it's mid-afternoon. It's so blazingly bright and hot because all of these chariots are all around you. It's a host of heavenly angels in full battle array. These aren't just wimpy little spirits. These are mighty warriors of heaven. And they're surrounding you everywhere you look. There's a new person to look at. And you hear those words that Elisha has just said that there is more that be with us than be with them this is demonstrable unmistakable proof of what Elisha has just asserted and again you can see that Elisha is very much giving this compassionate grace to this servant he's reassuring him with words and then he's reassuring them with unmistakable proof He says, there's more that be with us than that be with them. And if you want proof, here you go. This is the power that stands for us. This is the power of Yahweh. The power of Jehovah that is for you and I. I love those words that Elisha says. Especially those first two words. Fear not. Which is one of the most incredible promises and incredible phrases that is repeated throughout scriptures. It's very much one of the things that I think the Lord loves to remind his children. Fear not. And this is why. (laughs) Because this is the type of power that Yahweh has. The snap of a finger. But notice how this sequence plays out. Because it's, again, not like anything you might ever imagine. Notice verse 18. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So, all of this army, the Syrian invading force, they're suddenly blind. And then look at verse 19, Elisha is able to lead them off the beaten path, so to speak. We're not really told how, we're not really told exactly what this looked like, whether he was taking them by the hand or just influencing them through thoughts or something. But somehow he leads them and directs all of these Syrian invaders not to where they wanted to be, but suddenly they find themselves in the middle of nowhere, Samaria. Look at verse 19. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man to whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. And it came to pass when they were come into Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. (laughs) And if that weren't already surprising enough, watch what happens now. Because... Think about it from the king of Israel's perspective now. These enemies have been making your life miserable politically and socially and all those sorts of things for months at this point, warring against you. And now you have them in your paws, so to speak. They are in the middle of nowhere, Samaria. You can literally pounce on them and wipe them out completely. And he's thinking exactly that. Verse 21, and the king of Israel said to Elisha, when he saw them, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? You can see he wants to. And he, Elisha, says unto them, Thou shalt not smite them. What is thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Huh. There's, no, there's no fight, just a feast. There's no skirmish here in this text. There's all these men having supper together. <laughs> a very surprising turn of events. Especially because we know that this king of Israel, he's ready. And Elisha says, no, actually show them the opposite of what they deserve. Where there's, I think there's a word for that. It's called grace. <laughs> it's an interesting sequence of events. Very strange stories, stories don't you think? This Story of this recovered iron axe head, and then the story of this foiled invasion by the Syrian uh, legion. But if you break it down, and this is what struck me. If you break down both of these stories, what you have at their most basic, fundamental level, what you have is a crisis that is averted. In both cases... One story, of course, the Syrian invasion is very much a a crisis that is averted, that we feel is all too real. It's very overwhelming. This way in which God works so mightily through his prophet to avert this crisis of invasion. And yet the other story, it doesn't feel quite as significant. (laughs) It's just an axe head. There's nothing disastrous about losing that, really. I mean, you might go into debt to the guy that you borrowed it from, but it's not like it's ruining an entire nation. And yet, it's still a crisis to that student. You can hear it in his words. Alas, master was borrowed. Something was going to happen. He was going to be put into a difficult situation. It was a very much a crisis to him, which I think is just to say this, that... Notwithstanding the degree of crisis that we endure, the same sovereign God is sovereign in and over it all. Whether it's losing an axe head or thwarting an invasion, God is sovereign in both of those. The same Yahweh is both of those, which is just to say this, I think also, that both of these stories put back to back. I think totally ruin the idea that our God is a distracted dad. Let me me try and explain what I mean by that, because I I felt this, and maybe other dads, you felt this too, and maybe it's not just the dads, it's, it's the moms too who work, but I'll just speak from my own experience. Sometimes it's hard to come home from the office, so to speak, because my mind is still elsewhere. I'm distracted by all the quote-unquote stuff I've had to deal with or read or all those sorts of things. And the results, I would say, and just stress levels that are high and fuses that are short. <laughs> That's usually what happens. And when you come home, it's hard to sometimes turn off work mode. If you have a long drive, maybe you can listen to a podcast or listen to something. And it helps you just ease back into a better frame of mind. But sometimes that you don't always get that. And when you come home, what are you bombarded with? The concerns of a toddler, which are, if you're comparing them, they seem a lot less important. (laughs) Fix this. Help me with this. Put batteries in this really loud, annoying toy. (laughs) Those are the concerns that your toddler has, right? They want you to be there for them. And sometimes, I know I'm I'm confessing this because I'm guilty of this too, Even if you don't say it, you can easily brush those concerns off as if they're inconsequential, they're trivial, they don't really matter as much as what I've been dealing with. (laughs) And I think unfortunately, we sometimes attribute those same sorts of characteristics to God when it comes to bringing our problems to him. As if he's this very busy God who doesn't have time for our really small matters. We know God, he rules the universe and everything in it. We assert that from scripture. We know that he has control over the galaxies and over the universes that we don't even know exist. So obviously he's really busy. He's really preoccupied. But that's not anything like our God. He's not a a preoccupied parent who doesn't have time for us. He's an invested and he is an interested, tender, loving father. Father. To, yes, every single one of the needs that we bring to him, no matter how big, no matter how small. He values what perplexes us. He values what causes us distress. He hastens to comfort us in those precise moments, regardless of the size or the weight of the crisis. He delights to meet us right there where we are. And give us grace to help us in our time of need. Whatever that need may look like, the scope of it doesn't matter. The scale of it doesn't matter. I remember this one time. We were still living in South Florida at the time. It was several years ago. And we lost our dog for nine days. A German shepherd we had had since we had first gotten married. So it was like one of those dogs that's like an emblem of our marriage. You could say... (laughs) We had had her, since we immediately got married, we had her all of our our young little lives. And we moved from a place in South Florida to a place further south in Florida. And our dog didn't very much like that because the size of our property got a lot smaller. So she decided she was going to make a break for it. And she ran away. So we were scouring all over Broward County, as far south as Miami, trying to find this dog. And we, uh, nothing. I was kind of losing my nerve, losing hope that we would ever find this dog. And I remember driving around our neighborhood just crying, just sobbing. God, help me find this dog. Help me find her. And he did. We got a call from this, so we were in this neighborhood. The next neighborhood over, this lady called us and said, I think we found your dog, we go over there. She had fed and watered this dog for days. (laughs) So we we went and found her, and we got her, we brought her into our car, and it was just this amazing moment of reassurance. But it was also, in the years since I've thought about that, what an amazing uh, uh, fact that our God listens to those types of prayers. Lost dogs, lost axe heads, and yes, even ginormous invasions. God hears those concerns And he works in and through them in his sovereignty to bring about his will. How amazing is that? His agenda is not too full for your cares to go unnoticed. For your worries to go unheeded. He cares about all those small things. Your lost hairs as the gospel of Matthew says. The dead sparrows, your stubbed toes. And yes, he also exercises perfect providence over the biggest crises this world faces. That's who our God is. One of my favorite preachers, his name is Steve Brown. He was the old Key Life radio host. You may know his name. He has a deep voice. I always imagined Steve Brown's voice to be the voice of God. Just because it's so deep and amazing and rich. If you listen to him, you'll know what I mean. (laughs) But he said in a sermon one time, I was listening to him at this conference, and I loved what he said. And I, this is years ago, and I've written it down, and I think it's one of the most amazing quotes I've ever come across. I think he was preaching on Matthew 10, but regardless, he says, God, quote, is involved in bald heads and dead sparrows and the eternal verities of the Christian faith. <laughs> Which is just to say, he's involved in those really small things that don't seem to matter, and he's involved in the biggest things that have the biggest consequence. He's sovereign in both. So, again, take that into the moment in which we are in this world right now. The citizens of the country Ukraine have been forced to defend their country from a very senseless Russian invasion. And it's not hard, uh, as I was reading this particular passage, it wasn't hard for me to imagine. Some of the Ukrainian Christians running to God with the same sorts of prayer like this servant. What shall we do? What are we going to do? And I can't, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend I know what's going to happen because I don't. And anyone who says that they do is lying to you. Who can say what this global landscape is going to look like in the months ahead. But uh, number one, one of my prayers is just like the prayer of Elisha. That the enemies are completely diverted and thwarted in their amazing plans that they have. (laughs) That their glorious strategies are completely put to dust. I pray that with all of my heart. But let me ask you this question. What happens if the fighting gets worse? What happens if Ukraine is overrun? Well, we say this, we proclaim that God is still sovereign. You see, the juxtaposition of verse 16 and 17 is very striking. Because verse 16 would be just as true if verse 17 wasn't there. Even if Elisha hadn't given his servant this amazing proof that all of these angels are all around them waiting to fight back against the forces of evil. The promise of verse 16 would still be just as true as it ever was. Sometimes God gives us proofs. Sometimes he doesn't. Both now and forever, though, we know for sure that God, our Heavenly Father, surrounds His children with such a powerful, providential protection that no one can penetrate it unless He designs it. Psalm 125 verse 2 says this, As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about His people from henceforth even forever. First John 4, verse 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is the promise that's repeated throughout the scriptures. So yeah, even now, maybe we haven't seen this amazing vision of armored angels. But God is still just as watchful, just as mindful of your present crisis right now. Doesn't matter how big it is. Doesn't matter how consequential you may feel. Mine doesn't matter as much as this other person's. God cares about you and the crises that you face. And his purposes for us, for this globe, have not ever yet been shaken. I remember preaching that at the beginning of COVID, and we can still preach it now. God's purposes have never been upset. God doesn't have a plan B for this world. There's no uh, contingency that he has to go to because something happened that he wasn't expecting. He is in sovereign control over every single moment that this world has ever faced. So the Putins and the Bidens and the North Korean guys, they can think that they are the mover and shakers of our time. They can think that they are the ones who are controlling the earth's timetable. But you know what's happening actually? In heaven, God is just chuckling. He's laughing at the puny power grabs of pitiful men who think that they're mightier than they are. And he says that. I'm not just trying to be provocative. Psalm 2. You don't have to turn there, but just write this down. It's an amazing psalm, and it says exactly that. That our Lord is in heaven and he's laughing at man and all of his pomp. Psalm 2 verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. (laughs) The Lord shall have them in derision. You see there's only one mover and shaker of our time. There's only one architect of history. And you know who it is? It's the king of kings. The king of all kings. The one who rules and reigns over everything by the power of his spoken word. Do you know what the truly awesome news is? That the king who knows and is even sovereign over even that global invasion that is threatening everything. He's king over your little life too. And he cares about that, and he cares about you. He mercifully tends to our lost dogs and our lost axe heads, And you know what he also does? He masterfully bends all of the global leaders according to his will. He does both. He's a big God and a God who works big through small ways. <laughs> Proverbs 21 verse 1 is the verse that I've been thinking of ever since all of this news hit the news feeds. You know what it says? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Even now that's happening. With a king we don't understand who's doing something that doesn't make sense. That's wrecking and wreaking havoc on untold number of lives. Somehow, I don't understand it. Somehow, even this is happening according to the will of God. So I know that it doesn't make f- sense. And yet, what does the song say? Faith makes a fool of what makes sense. I pray that God would give us a vision of armored angels. But even if he doesn't, we know that greater is he that is in us than in he that is in the world. His authority extends over those mammoth catastrophes that this world endures. And yet, it also extends over those minuscule little hiccups that come about in your life. That's how sovereign this God is. That's how strong he is for the world and for you. The same sovereign God ruling and reigning over every single one of our moments. So we can cry to him. We can vent our frustrations to him. We can, yes, we can even in the Psalms, David was given over to cursing and saying, God, why have you turned your face away? Because God cares. God knows He knows your crisis, how for big or small it is. And he works to bring about his glory through it. Yeah, for misplaced axe heads. Yes, even malicious invasions. The same sovereign God is over them all. So may we, like the psalmist in Psalm 46 verse 10, be still and know that he is God. Let us pray.